I'd invite you again to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 is where we find ourselves again in this series, a series that I'm framing Jesus' values of the kingdom. I kind of have rethought chapter 18 and thought of it again in terms of ways that Jesus values um, his kingdom and His values, if we are kingdom citizens, need to be our values. What he loves, we need to likewise love. We learned last week that childlike humility is something that Jesus loves, which is very different than the pride of this world, the pride of trying to self-actualize or climb a ladder. Jesus calls us to be like a child, Verses 1 to 6, this week we're learning about radical amputation, what it means to really do business and deal with our sin and cut it out of our lives. Verses 7 through 9, the third category of something Jesus values is sacrificial rescue, the story that should be all of our stories where we're intercepted by God's rescuing grace, his rescue mission in our lives. Verses 10 through 14. Verses 15 to 20 is the section on church discipline, which is also a form of rescue where we have to acknowledge that we love holiness. More than avoiding awkwardness, we love holiness, and so we go after people, and we try to rescue them ourselves through God's means, affectionate holiness, verses 15 to 20, and then unconditional forgiveness. We live a, we will forgive you 70 times seven life with people that are sinning against us or who have offended us. We are forgivers. So our section this morning is under, I borrowed this from John Piper, radical amputation severing sin out of your life and casting it away from you. Listen as I read verses 7 to 9. This is Jesus teaching on that. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. This is a heavy dose of what Jesus values. It's what some have called the upside down kingdom when you think in terms of these kinds of values. Things like, hey, I want to be as humble as a dependent child and I want to deal radically with what is haunting me in my own life. What maybe a lot of people don't know about but you know about, I'm going to do business with because Jesus, my king, values that for me. Last week, we learned about true greatness being humility. Greatness defined by the world is one of gaining position or power, authority, acclaim. 
It's what the disciples of Christ were jockeying for position in. Verse 1, the disciples came to Jesus. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who, once we get there, is going to be best? Who's going to be at the right hand or the left hand of the throne of God? Who gets that position? Instead, Jesus says, no, you're to be like a little one. A micron, which is the idea of being an infant, helpless, dependent, left to himself, herself, would die of the world's vulnerabilities. One who needs a guardian, someone to literally guard that person's life. That's the attitude of humility that Jesus values for you to have. Verse 4, you see that whoever humbles himself like this child, that's the example. And then verse 6, Whoever causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's the protecting heart of God on a little one, a new convert that's like a little child, a baby Christian. Verse 10, this theme's picked up again. We'll see next week. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, this little micron. Don't shun this one in the body. And then verse 14, so it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. There's a great paternal instinct exerted here for little ones. It's a theme that's thread throughout Matthew 18, protecting little ones. You even pick it up with a a, a straying brother, winning a brother back to um, the fold like the prodigal son. There's a family-like love. It's woven throughout this text. Little ones are those whom Jesus loves. It's not always convenient to love little ones, and that in the church is the same thing. It's not always convenient to love a baby Christian, someone who knows very little about the Bible, someone who might be, for you, a a challenge to communicate spiritual things with because they haven't been taught yet. But like it is with the shunning family at Thanksgiving dinner where you're not welcome to the adult table, even if you are an adult. I was always relegated to the child's table. I'm still not over that, obviously. (laughs) But that that vibe and feel of not being welcomed into a family is felt by many people in their own experience. And it hurts to be shunned. Likewise, does it hurt in the church? Even more so, to be shunned and not welcomed in, not to be accepted, not to be loved, not to be discipled or trained within a church. And Jesus is giving protective measures for the little ones, the new believers who are entering into the kingdom. Don't be like the disciples who are jockeying for power position within the church. Who's the greatest? Be humble like a little one and be welcoming and protective of the little ones, the babies, the toddlers within the church. Be the caregiver. Now, the Bible has a clear sweeping love for children. I love this parallel to our school ministry and the children who are here. The Iwana ministry, Vacation Bible School, this place is crawling with kids all week long as Well, it should be. God loves children. Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament economy, the 
heaven on earth going into Canaan experience where they were experiencing a land of milk and honey and rich blessing by um, journeying there as the wilderness wanderers and constituting the nation of Israel there. It was under the commandment of the great Shema passage of Deuteronomy 6. Uh, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess it. Listen to this, that you may fear the Lord your God and you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and commandments. Look at the generations listed there. You need to be a believer who's like a child so that you can pass that faith down in a godly way to your children, to people who are watching you. And then those kids, you kids that are sitting here watching your parents, your job is to grow in the fear of the Lord, in the knowledge of God's word. That's why you're sitting here so that you in turn will give that same love for Christ, that same Love for his word, passing it down generation to generation so that your kids will do it to their kids or for their kids. That's what is modeled for us in Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord your God, verse 5, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit at the house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Discipleship is life. And as you live this Christian life in front of people, you're, you're doing a great service to children who are watching your testimony. If you're raised up in pride, you're destroying that. So the upside down kingdom says, be humble, be like children and pass your faith on to those kids. Proverbs 22, six, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he'll not depart from it. That's a truism. That's something we see over and over. Even kids that we think that become adults that are just gone. When life falls apart, they come back to the Lord for help. Luke 2.52, Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge in favor with God and man as a young boy um, maturing into manhood. He modeled growing for us. Matthew nineteen thirteen to 15, the children were welcome to Jesus. Jesus laid hands on him and said, such are the kingdom of God for them. Such belongs the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 14, 20, in the spiritual sense of maturity, Paul said, brothers, don't be like children in your thinking be infants in evil, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Growth, First Thessalonians 2, 6 and 7, Paul addressed the church as if he was a nursing mother, tenderly caring for his, the young. And you think of that in terms of children and the a special care for young children in the faith. He was protective in Ephesians 4, 14 of the church at Ephesus. Don't be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, cunning human schemes, being protective of young believers in the body, what they think about, where they go. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Ephesians 6, 1 to 4, back to actual families with kids. He says, children, it's like he's calling them out. Children, pay attention. Obey your parents in the Lord. It's for this is right. Honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with the promise that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. But then fathers, he calls them out. 
Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Then in 1 Peter, Peter is showing his love for children, comparing newborn believers to infants who long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up in your salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. There's classifications in the body of Christ that John um, kind of completes this thought with in 1 John 2. He says, I'm writing to you, verse 12, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. You have children in the body of Christ. You have young, um, maturing young men young men and women, that classification of I'm growing, I understand some doctrine, I'm understanding some truth, I'm gaining some ground here, I've overcome the devil. I mean, the devil is still the tempter, there's schemes, but I'm wise to those schemes with some applied doctrine. And then there are fathers who are examples to the young men and women in the church and the infants or the children. But you have these three levels within the body of Christ listed at first in 1 John, said, I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. You know God. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you or remains in you and you have overcome the evil one. This is the body of Christ. New believers, whatever age, are vulnerable to spiritual harm. They're vulnerable to being led into a, a fog of, of, or a pit of like confusion, not understanding what they're supposed to do or why they were treated the way that they were treated or why is a leader, a spiritual leader, raising themselves up in arrogance, trying to like achieve things like the disciples were. That wrecks a new child of God's Faith, they will remain a believer if they're a true believer, but oftentimes they are sidelined in ways. Legalistic rule keeping can be false teaching that they pick up on right away and they say, what do I have to do to perform and do my best and stay strong in the body of Christ? How do I need to dress? How do, where do I need to go? What do I need to do or not do to keep myself right with God? It becomes the performance trap of legalism. Second, licentiousness. Well, you don't have to do anything. There's no such thing as obedience. There's no real accountability. And then someone who's violating their conscience early in their Christian experience. To, he who, to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. That person says, well, everybody is doing it and it's all good, so I'll do it. And then they're, they're just dying inside. It's easy for a toddler Christian to just wobble into the ditch of legalism or the ditch of licentiousness or worldliness and not know why they're not growing very well. We should be jealously protective of new Christians and welcoming. Do them, do right by them. Matthew 18, 10, um, we're going to look at this next week, but it says, see to it that no one despise one of these little ones, these micron." For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. There are angels who are staring into the face of God on behalf of new baby Christians. Where if God says, go, he dispatches an angelic search and rescue team to come around new Christians and help them in ways that perhaps we can't see or understand. But it shows you the heart of God here. And this is all prologue to verses seven to nine. 
what we're going to unpack. It's the seriousness of Christ's warning to not cause a little one to stumble. And we looked at that last week at at verse six, that if a leader is raising himself up in pride, and that is the sin, the stumbling block sin that a leader can do and causes a little one to stumble, it's as if they deserve immediate execution. Millstone around the neck and drowned. Jockeying for first place and shunning new believers are serious sins. Think of Peter. He did this. He shunned the new Gentile believers in the early church. He said, they, you know, the law says we're not supposed to eat with Gentiles. We're not supposed to participate in table fellowship. So they're not welcome at my table. And that's Peter like regressing from what he had learned. He'd already learned at Cornelius' house that God was welcoming the Gentiles. He had had the vision that came down, kill and eat, eat animals that for a Jew were not kosher, but he was living in denial and regressing and saying, I'm not going to open my arms, heart, and table fellowship to the Gentiles. It's a sin that Paul was severe with Peter over. It's pride. Pride is the petri dish. I said this last week that all other sins grow. It's what we need to root out in our own lives. It's what disqualifies us. But verse seven, let's look at our text here. This introduces a second battlefront. The first is within the church with disqualified leadership that are shunning new believers. Now for the new believer, Jesus is warning them of the world. What's outside the church. Stumbling blocks that are coming from the world. The temptations and that words temptations in verse seven are is the word stumbling blocks it's scandalone we're looking at two recognitions if you're going to outline this two recognitions for young believers fighting temptation they got to recognize two things about the world This is the preparation work of a parent to a child saying, okay, I'm sending you off to school or I'm sending you out into this hostile environment and I want to teach you some spiritual karate so you'll know how to defend yourself. Two recognitions for young believers. This applies to all believers. This is how you fight temptation. You have pride-driven leaders in the church sometimes. You got to know about that and be humble And then there's a demon world that will hypnotize new Christian converts with lies that you need to not fall prey to. The first recognition is this. God will deal with the world. That's verse 7. God will deal with the world. Jesus says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Why did Jesus start his section on dealing with your sin by dealing with the world? The first focus is the world. And Jesus is just wanting to say something as a baseline principle to you, for you to pick up on, to arm you to fight your own sin. And that is simply this. Jesus is going to take care of the world. You don't have to worry about it. I think a lot of times we, we want to pronounce the woe judgment on the world. And Jesus is saying, I've got this. Woe to the world for temptations 
to sin. And the world is sending its temptations all the time. What's a woe judgment? A woe judgment is defined by the dictionary of Bible themes as a grief and anguish and affliction, a wretchedness, calamity, or trouble. Woe is an exclamation of judgment on others. Woe is an exclamation of misfortune on oneself. Woe is an exclamation of sadness over others. It's a damnable judgment that's already in play at the time that it is spoken. Woe or cursed is this land. In this case, it's the broadest sweep of a woe judgment. Woe to the world. Wasn't always that way. Sometimes the Bible speaks of a suffering person being under their own woe judgment because of foolish choices. Proverbs 23, 29 through 30, there's a woe judgment that Jesus will give to the Pharisees where he says over and over again, seven times he gives seven woe judgments to the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers, hypocrites. You're under condemnation. Seven woes there. There'll be three woe judgments as God's final judgment in the book of Revelation. One writer said it's a castigation of the false Jewish leaders. Um, Jesus repeatedly used two words. He uses woe and hypocrites. It's an exclamation and a declaration, a divine pronouncement from God. fiery language. In Ezekiel chapter 16, 23, there are several passages of woe judgment, anger towards even Jerusalem for their idolatry. Woe, woe to you, declares the Lord. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, the Philistines um, were at war against Israel and the Ark of the Covenant comes into their camp. And this is what It said, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they understood the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid. And they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who will save us from the hand of the mighty, these mighty gods? They were viewing it through a pagan lens saying the ark is here. And so God's going to tear us up. These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with the plagues in the wilderness. The woe judgments were pronounced in Hosea, the minor prophets, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, and many other instances. Job understood that sin leads to a woe. He says, if I am guilty, woe to me, Job 10, 15. Woe judgments were pronounced on whole cities throughout the Old Testament, In Isaiah chapter 5, you see um, Isaiah the prophet pronouncing a woe judgment on Israel over and over and over again because of their idolatrous nature. And then in Isaiah 6, everything turns on him. He goes in, sees a vision of the high, exalted Lord, his holiness on display, and he says, woe is me. He says, woe to you. But then he looks at himself in the mirror because of the blazing glory of God. He says, woe to me. Jesus in Matthew 11, we learned this before, he pronounced a woe to Chorazin and Bethsaida. He said, for if the mighty works done in you had, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. If Tyre and Sidon would have seen what I showed you, they would have repented. But woe to you, Bethsaida and Chorazin, these towns that are close and adjacent to Jerusalem. You saw these miracles and you rejected Jesus. 
And so you are currently under a judgment. Later, he says in verse 12, but I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Sodom and Gomorrah will be better off than you are. The ultimate woe judgment we do not want to hear is from the throne of Christ himself. Matthew 7, 23, then I'll declare to them, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This woe judgment is very, very generic to the world. That's what Jesus is pronouncing here in Matthew 18, 7. Woe to the world for the stumbling blocks of sin. And they're coming fast and furiously to us, aren't they? All of social media, all the agendas, all the time. It's endemic. It's pervasive. It's everywhere flowing from the world to the heart. And these are the scandalone sins, stumbling blocks, things that you are scandalized by, things that are tripping you up and tripping up, especially young, new believers. So why, why is this planted here in this section on learning how to repent of sin? These are sins from the outside coming as opposed to sins from the inside. So why is this the prologue to cutting the sin out of your own life or gouging it out? Well, it's because man is so susceptible. New Christians, men and women, we're all so susceptible to blaming the world for our sin. And the temptation looks something like this. Man, if social media wasn't so predatory and so pervasive and so wrong and so horrible, then I would not be falling into sin like I am. If the devil was not so live in the world, I would be safe. And so what I need to do is correct that. I need to fight the world's politics. I need to fight the world's agendas. I need to fight the world through policy, procedure, or just through my own negative attitude. I need to protest the world. And that's what's going to make me feel better about my sin because it's the world's fault, not my own. And Jesus is just taking that right off the table. He says, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Yes, the, yes, the world is under judgment. And yes, it is throwing stumbling blocks all the time at you for you to trip up over. For it's necessary that temptations come. This is the nature of our world. It's, it's going to happen practically. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You might be saying, look. I am sad about the world in general, but. Even in specific, I'm mad because there are specific tempters who have tempted me or tempted my friend and have led them astray, and I'm angry at them. It's their fault. You know, the liberals play this game. Liberal agendas say that it's always the man that's keeping me down. It's the world's problem. That's why I'm not achieving. That's why I'm not successful. But conservatives do the same thing. They rant about the world. They rant about how vile and sinful it is, how perverse it is, how twisted it is. And it is these things. But that's not the cause for why you sin. Do you hear me on that? It's not the cause. Adam and Eve, they tried to blame each other, blame Satan. The cause is you for your sin, not the world. But the world catalyzes it. It sets the table. I had no other option. No, it's you. Jesus wants that to be clear before he goes into what we're supposed to do about our sin. James 1, 13 to 15, let no one say when he is tempted, 
I'm being tempted by God. You say, well, I thought we were talking about blaming the world, not God. No, when you blame the world, who's the God who created this world? There's a passive blame on God when you blame the world, when you blame circumstances, when you blame your upbringing, when you blame, when you blame, when you blame outside of yourself, you're blaming God. And James says, I have no time for that. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He's not the author of evil. And he himself tempts no one. He doesn't do this. He doesn't cause anyone to sin. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And his then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. If you never repent and you never become born again and you live within this blame game, then you'll die forever in eternity. If you are a believer and you start to do the blame game, then you will just live a miserable existence here on earth by blame shifting and not taking responsibility for yourself and your sin. Jesus goes general at first with that woe judgment and then narrows his focus at the end of verse 7 with a specific woe judgment. And this is when temptations actually gain a face. When evil has a face in your life or someone that you love's life and you're sad, a political leader, it's their fault. It's my boss. It's his fault or her fault. A college professor, that person became the chief influence in the life of my child and led that person astray. An atheist, a philosopher, a celebrity. Social media, whose fault is it? These can be a strong force of influence, but sinning functionally begins in the heart, practically so. Great heartache and consternation when you see people that you love fall away. The Lord is saying that sometimes evil does take a face, but leave that person to me. You worry about you and your sin, what you can control, what you can deal with. Don't worry about them out there. Blame shifting causes new Christians to be very vulnerable. And so if you are a blame-shifting influence in someone's life, you're causing them to stumble. You're setting the table for them to sin. You're not helping them by blaming something out there, especially for your own sin. What are we to do? We leave vengeance to the Lord. Deuteronomy 32, 35, this is the verse that prompted Jonathan Edwards' famous Sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Moses was saying this before the children of Israel were going into Canaan. It says, Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. Judgment will be on, the, on your enemies, the Canaanites. Trust the Lord. Paul makes this practical for the church. Romans 12, 17, and 21 Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all if possible. So far as it depends on you, what? Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never do that. But leave it to the wrath of God. No matter how tempted you are, we leave it with the Lord. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That was a sign of 
repentance where people will soften up. They would hold coals over their head as a symbol of a softer heart. It's what happens when you're kind to people. It softens them rather than hardens them. A gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. Remember that in a gravel, icy parking lot, right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Live at peace. Don't repay evil for evil. Remember, the Lord Jesus, he didn't revile in return. First Peter chapter 2. We're instructed to do the same, to forgive, to love our enemies, to pray for them, and leave justice with God, not yourself. All right, now let's narrow into what we're supposed to do in light of that. We're supposed to put the judgment on ourselves, verses 8 and 9. This is the second recognition. The first is that God is the judge, not ourselves. We let God take care of the world. Well, secondly, we're called to fight the enemy within. Believers must deal with themselves. Let God deal with the world. You deal with yourself. That's the outline. And you do this by first in verse 8, amputating actions. Amputating your own actions. Don't fight on, with the world on the outside. Fight with yourself working from the inside. Inside out, not outside in. Get it? You fight with your, you fight your own sin by amputating your actions. Verse 8. But if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, obviously, we're not talking about physical mutilization. Or that would be cult worship. The cult worship of the Baal pagans of first kings 1828 where they cried aloud they were at mount carmel they were in the big fight against one you know all these hundreds of pagan prophets against elijah elijah was provoking them and they cried aloud and cut themselves and after their custom was swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them it's where a pagan has no other recourse they're whooped up in their own frenzy trying to fix themselves to the point of self-harm and self-mutilization and this is a real dynamic even happens today the greek culture was docetic they said that all flesh was evil a dualism that's gnostic they're saying intellectual knowledge um, higher understanding self-actualization that's true spirituality anything physical is wrong and evil that was the way they were dealing with sin trying to fight it that way and then the exact opposite are the naturalists and we have those in our culture as well we have people who rely on intellect and we have people who love and worship nature that's naturalism people who save the planet save the water save the heat save the cold save this world because we want to worship it it's like, how do we deal with our sin? Well, people will deal with it all kinds of crazy ways because they don't want to deal with the creator who created the aurora borealis. We don't worship that. We are in awe of God who made that happen for our enjoyment. But to be in awe of God and say that is of God is to be accountable to that God. Then we got to deal with our own hearts. It brings us back to verse 8. Step one for dealing with stumbling blocks and temptation is to amputate, work from the inside out. But here, Jesus says, it's your hand or foot that's causing you to sin. Cut it off and throw it away. What is Jesus saying? He's he's talking about behavior modification to reroute what you're willing to touch, what you're willing to to hand to someone or receive what you're, where you're willing with your feet to go to. See, so he's saying just reroute these things. I thought we were talking about the heart, not 
our behaviors. But again, this is a metaphor that Jesus uses and metaphors can say but so much about one thing at a time. And Jesus is not saying everything he could say about what causes our sin or how to repent of it. But he's using a real practical and tangible means by talking about physical hands and physical feet. What you touch, what you grab, where you go. He's saying you have to think about that in terms of your heart. What sin patterns are you involved in? And are you ready to say, I'm ready to stop? What do you allow yourselves to look at? Where do you allow yourselves to go? Who do you allow yourselves to be around? And am I willing yet to say, I want to stop that now? Repentance is the idea of turning an about face, pulling a 180 and saying, I'm going to stop doing it. There's graphic language here. It's the idea of cutting it off. It's a dramatic intervention in your life and throwing it away. You don't cut it off and just leave it there to go back to it, to try to reattach it in your life. You're saying, I'm done and I'm done forever. I'm severing this and I'm throwing it all the way away. Now, people who in breakup situations, they, they have to cut up the old love letters or pictures and literally throw them away. And there's a detachment from the heart where you're working through that. You're putting stuff away. Things that are idols in your life, things that are dominating in your life. And you're saying, I'm willing to make a statement that I'm going to now stop. This is what a new believer needs to do. It's what mature believers need to model to new believers. This is dealing with sin, not blame shifting. Oh, it's about them or that or that person. No, it's about me and I'm going to take hold of myself and call quits on something, something that is hurting me. John Owen put it this way. You're either killing sin or sin is killing you. Jesus is calling you as a believer to be willing to kill something out of your life. How dramatic do you have to be? It says, he says, it's better for you to enter life crippled, enter life being um, an affirmation that you are in the kingdom. I believe in eternal security. Once you're saved, you're always saved. But I also believe in the perseverance of the saints. A true Christian who's been transformed from the inside out will want to do this. A person who is not yet a Christian will have no time for cutting something out of their life. Because they're feeding themselves by the world, inside and out. They don't want to cut that out of their life. A believer does. A believer is validating that they are truly a believer and they are entering life, meaning they are assured that they are in the kingdom by doing this. By not doing this, you should have no assurance of your own salvation. A believer is alive and and people who are alive do stuff. If you're dead, you have no time for the fight. You have no ability to fight. You're just laying there dead spiritually. I thought we were talking about Christians here. Why does Jesus bring up hell? Look at that. He says, if you don't do this, you'll be thrown into the eternal fire. By the way, don't miss that word eternal. Hell is forever. God's hell, defined by scripture, is eternal. It's ongoing. And so why is Jesus using dramatic language like severing your arm or your foot? 
If he didn't use language this dramatic, then I don't think he'd be talking about something where the stakes are as high as hell, eternal hell. Why wouldn't he use a metaphor this dramatic, a, a, a measure this dramatic, if he wasn't talking about whether you were going to hell or not? Are you willing to amputate your sin? A lack of willingness might be proving that you are not yet a Christian. Or perhaps as we read before Psalm 32, you're just under the pile of your own guilt and you're drowning And you need an intervention. Hell is God's brake pedal to slam the brakes of the car and show us that the stakes are high. We need to do business, look in the mirror and say, am I really a believer or not? Because I need to want to do this. I need to want to let this go. If you're holding on to stuff with your hands and saying, I want to do business with God, but you can't, you can't like get the key in the door. You can't, you can't break through because you're holding the stuff. I'm telling on myself, I always do too much and then drop stuff and clumsy. I remember the old commercial. Um, I was never a smoker, but um, maybe it was the commercial that did it. But it was the little kid that was dribbling the basketball and he had the cigarette in his hand at the same time and said, you can't do both. You can't do both. You can't hold on to the world and pick up a, the Lord's dagger and, and do business with your, your sin You can't hold a shield and dagger and and go to work, go to battle against your own heart if you're cluttered and clumsy with hanging on to the world's sin that you need to let go of. When you do that, when you fight, when when you just even come to the point where you're saying, I know I want to fight, then the assurance of your salvation will build. That's the idea of entering life. It's the assurance of your salvation. I know I'm in the kingdom. I'm in life now and I'm going to enter when I die forever. Even if I'm crippled, even if in the world's eyes, they say, why'd you give that up? Why don't you do that? Why don't you give over to drunkenness or sexual immorality? Why don't you look at these things? No, I want to be crippled from that. Because I love the Lord. If you leave your sin and your heart undealt with, You're living according to an enemy in your heart that's lying to you, saying, hey, you're fine. It's not harming anyone. No one else knows about it. It's inside. It's not outside. If you compare yourself to this person or that person, you're no worse off than they are, so you're fine. Think of God's intervention to Cain when Cain was having homicidal, murderous thoughts against Abel, his brother. He said, If your countenance doesn't raise, meaning if your heart doesn't start to soften, sin is crouching at the door. It's like a lion's going to pounce and eat you. Judas Iscariot, no different. How close was Judas to Jesus? Well, he was given power to do miracles. Jesus washed Judas's feet. When Jesus called out Judas Iscariot in front of the disciples, the disciples were wondering who it was. They weren't like, oh, we know. <laughs> He's the bad one. They weren't doing that. They're like, is it me, Lord? What? What? Judas? I mean, he's, he's one of our, our guys. How did Jesus address Judas right at the end? Matthew 26, 50. Jesus said, friend. That's how he addressed him. Friend. Could you imagine Jesus calling you friend? Friend. Do what you came to do. So 
It says, then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Just, friend, do what you, that's right at the garden scene in the night. That's crazy. Judas was close to Jesus. He was the money keeper. We say he was bad for that. Well, he, he was probably rationalizing all kinds of stuff. You know, don't, don't break the alabaster of oil on Jesus' head. We could give that money to the poor. He probably was all wound up in his own mind for that, but he was keeping it back for himself. King Saul, remember him? He, the first king of Israel had the spirit of God rushing upon him. And yet I believe he apostatized, wasn't a real believer after all, defaulting his position of authority because of his own pride. People who believe that they are safe when they are unwilling to really deal with their own sin. They believe they're safe and in the kingdom. You are self-deceived and you're deluding yourself and you're playing with literal fire and the idea of eternal fire. What does it take to sever your own sin from your life? Well, here's an illustration. You remember, and I've, I've used this before. It's kind of gross and graphic, but our text is as well. Aaron Ralston, he was a climber. He was 27 years old. He went to the Blue John Canyon. He didn't tell anybody he was going. His first mistake, he was carrying a small knife and a rucksack and a liter of water and two burritos and a few chunks of chocolate and climbing in the narrows of Utah, never telling anyone. He fell down into that big crevasse and had his arm that was uh, trapped by a giant, you know, several hundred pound boulder and he couldn't get out. But he had enough water apparently with his water bladder and tube and, and food to be able to survive there. He was there for five and a half days wondering what to do. Ultimately, he realized, came to himself, that if he was going to survive, he had to cut off his arm. Now, he's made a big living off of telling this story. And it is heroic in one sense, but in another sense, it's just survival. Your arm's already gone. It's already jellified. It's already gone. You need to cut it off if you're going to live. And, but that's how it is in the Christian life. You've got to come to yourself and realize, I'm down here in this pit with my arm pinned, and I'm either going to do something about it or I'm going to die. That's what Aaron came to seeing. He was puffed up in pride. He was a canyoneer guy. He had climbed the Colorado, Colorado's 14ers, which are 14,000 foot peaks. He thought he was awesome, but he had been humbled to the dust at this point. And he ultimately had to make a tourniquet from the bladder hose. This is just for interesting grins or whatever, just because I'm going to go over noon. You know, I'll tell you cool stories anyway, but it's like he had to tourniquet his own arm, cut through, like gas is coming out, all kinds of gross stuff that I read about. But he came to bone and couldn't get through it. So you have to just kind of break it really hard. Final jolt, he made it out. Jesus is asking, no, he is commanding that we do this with our own sin. It's not playtime. It's not time to hold on to your sin and say, I have Christ. You either can sing with a clear conscience, all I have is Christ, or you really are living in duplicity. What's bad is by not amputating your own sin, you could be leading other people astray. Well, you not only amputate actions, but you amputate, verse 9, appetites. This is where we're really getting into the depth of sin, the sinfulness of sin. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
Your eye gate is the front door into your mind. It's the room that only you and God are inside of. Do you understand that? This is the part where you can tell yourself, I am safe and sound. I can think about whatever I want to think about. I'm in charge of my own imaginations. They come in and they go at my own whim and will. And God doesn't care one way or the other what's happening because it's not hurting anyone on the outside. It's only what I'm doing on the inside. Well, God is saying, and Christ is, your accountability is saying, you've got to rip that out of your life to have the assurance of your salvation. That's what it means to enter life with one eye. Again, you're not wanting to cause people to stumble. You can't blame the world for what's going on in your mind. The world is sending those stumbling blocks through your phones into your minds. You got to say, no, I'm going to rip it out. I'm going to tear it off. I'm going to cast it away forever. I'm not going to think about it. The secret sins of my own imaginations aren't secret to you, God. And so I'm repenting to you, God, for those sins. And you say, how severe do you need to be? Severe enough to say it out loud or in your mind, you are confessing what God already knows to be true about your own life. And I'm not just talking to the men. Men are wired differently than women. But when adultery is committed between a man and a woman, it is committed between a man and a woman. There are things that are happening in the heart of a woman that leads a woman to allow herself to sin in those ways. And likewise for the man, things build up, they're unconfessed. There's resentment, regret, desperation, hopelessness, um, the pride of wanting comfort from another that you're not supposed to have. All those sin temptations build in the heart of a man or a woman, which is something that is held in the imaginations of the heart. That's where it all starts is what Jesus is saying, rip out of your life. Martin Luther said, it's not the birds that fly over, but the sins that nest, that you allow to nest. So it's one thing for thoughts to flash in, in and out of your mind. It's another thing for you to feed upon those thoughts. It's one thing for you to look. It's another thing for you to linger. Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. You don't want to do that. You have to kill the sin at the depth of the imaginations. Otherwise, you are not really taking care of the cancer of your soul. Left to itself, it will metastasize and kill you. And in this case, send you to hell. People who are repenting at this level of self-intervention, they'll usually invite others into their life and safe people for you to talk to, a safe circle for you to say, this is where I'm at. This is what I've done. And believers will do this. Believers have an appetite to deal with their sin because they know they're wrong, they know they're busted, and they want to be right. Uh, Believers actually will find joy in this because you say, man, finally you've called my bluff. Oh, I know what I need to do. Coming out of my own self-delusion. An unbeliever will say, I've got no time for this. I'd never do that. Or we'll say, I'm coming to Christ, I'm going to do that. That's what this means. You enter life, you enter into the confidence that you are in the kingdom rather than being self-deceived and thrown, literally cast into hell. Just like we're to cast a limb of sin away, discard a hand or a foot away. If we don't, we'll be cast whole body into hell. Hell, that's the threat of undealt with 
sin. If you make the world your standard, if you tell yourself there's no consequence for sin, if you're acting like a kid in elementary school that's uh, falling prey to peer pressure, you're playing with literal fire. We need to spiritually apply lex talionis, an eye for an eye. We've sinned, and so we're willing to gouge our eye out for it. And that's the grace of God. In the Old Testament economy, an eye for an eye was the grace of God. And if you put someone's eye out, instead of being killed by that as a capital offense, you just had to take your eye out. Spiritually speaking, that's what Jesus is saying. By the power and mercy of the gospel, you can do business with your sin. You're not earning your salvation. You're not giving yourself salvation. You're responding to the fact that you've been transformed and you've got the power of the Holy Spirit to kill sin in your life. You're willing to starve yourself from your sin If it's all a secret, there's no assurance. Paul began with God. He said, look, God is my witness. I have clean hands in my ministry. He also confessed, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, I don't do. Deliver me. I'm open and laid bare before you. I am the chief of sinners. It's Romans 7 and 2 Timothy Hell is God's brake pedal. You have to deal with sin on the scale of eternity, in view of eternity. You've got to come to a place of intervention. When I was 30, I think I was 35 years old, I was driving. Uh, we lived in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was driving there, and I was on an old country road. And I've told this story before. I was on the phone with my wife, and I looked up, and there was a Mack truck, and it was filled with concrete, and it was going across. And that first one passed, and I'm cruising at speed limit, you know, just going along. There was a tree berm that sort of separated uh, me from the second truck that was coming visually. And that second truck, I assumed it would stop and look. Bad assumption. It came right in front of me, followed the first truck. And I was on a course collision to T-bone the side of that Mack truck. And I remember locking the wheels up, you know. Judy's hearing all of this over the phone, you know, just just crazy. And my thought as I was going into the side of the truck, realizing I wasn't going to be able to swerve and get away from it is, really? Like, this is how I'm going to die. Great. What a disappointment. I was disappointed in myself. And so, but by God's grace, I actually screeched into the side of the truck that is the uh, gas tank, which you say, well, that's real bad because it's going to explode. It didn't explode, but I basically hit it and it crumpled and spun me around. And I was okay. And I was so okay that I was celebrating. And I looked in front of me and these, these two elderly people are, I was face to face because I was spun around. So I'm face to face, windshield to windshield with this older couple. And I went, woo, I'm alive. <laughs> I had a little bit of a celebratory dance out on the side of the car. And then I went, oh, I got to tell Judy I'm alive. So I told her. And then she showed up and brought, we had three little kids at that point. Our older ones were younger and Logan, who's five, was strapping himself out of his seatbelt to get to me. And then Riley is just enamored by all the fire trucks and firemen around. And she's like, this is the best day ever. (laughs) But that was the kind of moment where you go, what is life all about? And I want you to have that moment in your own heart. Where am I spiritually? Am I in the kingdom? Have I tasted life 
you value amputating your sin, then the answer very well could be yes. I'm committed to repentance and trusting the Lord in that repentance because God's changed me. If you're not there, you need to be there. It's our prayer. Why did Jesus use graphics this severe? Because hell is really that real.